We're in a summer series. Um, well, maybe before I talk about that, let me just quickly say, um, it's the long weekend. Has anyone noticed? The long weekend is great. Um, I, I'm always a little bit like, I always have to double check, go online and see like, what really are the statutory holidays in Canada? It seems like they vary and they do actually vary. There's some national ones and then there's provincial ones. And we happen to have a statutory holiday in Saskatchewan this weekend, and which is, which is great. But I was just looking it up real quick. I just said like, what, what's, why is this a statutory holiday? What's the big deal? Anyhow, this is what I found that, that this holiday, this civic holiday, is called totally different things across Canada. Let me give you a, a sampling. In Newfoundland, this Monday is called Reg, uh, Regatta Day. Regatta Day. I guess they must take their boats out or something. In Manitoba, they call it Terry Fox Day. In British Columbia, they call it uh, British Columbia Day. In, <laughs> in uh, Nova Scotia and PI, they call it Natal Day. Natal Day. And I'm not totally sure about the origins of that. I didn't look it up. Uh, New Brunswick, they call it New Brunswick Day. And in Alberta, they call it Heritage Day. Now, what do you think they call it in Saskatchewan? Family Day. No, Family Day is in February, but this one's Saskatchewan Day. Yeah, we're just, we're about as creative as British Columbia is. And, um, but here's the interesting one, Ontario. Isn't Ontario always good for a story? Anyhow, in Ontario, they, they are like herding cats, right? They just say every city can call it whatever they want. So they do. So, uh, in Burlington, Ontario, it's called Joseph Brandt Day. Um, in uh, the city of Vaughan, Ontario, it's called the Benjamin Vaughan Day. In, uh, um, it's, in Toronto, it's called Simcoe Day. And in Ottawa, it's called Colonel By Day. I don't know who Colonel By was. I should know. Probably it's Canadian history or something, but I don't know. But if Moose Jaw had the freedom to call it whatever they wanted, what did you think we should call it? Call it out. What do you think we should call it? Oh, you. <laughs> no. Now I know how you got your good marks in school. Now I know. <laughs> okay. Moose Day. Did I hear Moose Day? Or Mac the Moose Day? That would be a good one. Yeah. Potholes Day. <laughs> oh. Okay, potholes day. <laughs> unexpected day. <laughs> We're surprised. It's surprisingly unexpected that we got a holiday. I thought of Snowbirds Day. That would be a good one. I thought the fun one to really do would be just Al Capone Day. <laughs> you can tell who works at the tunnels. Al Capone Day. That would be a real fun one to do. But um, anyhow, I had some similar thoughts when I was coming to. Uh, the, the sermon title that I was going to use for today, it's our sermon series is called Summer Playlist, uh, Psalms for Your Soul. So what we've been doing every week through, through, well, for a number of weeks now in the summer is just taking a psalm out of the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. It's the biggest book in the Bible, 150 psalms. And we've taken a, a few of them, just a handful really over these last few weeks. And we've been sharing some of these ancient lyrics, these ancient songs that were sung in 
ancient Israel, but then continued to be sung through the years by the church. It really was, the Psalms were like the hymn, the first hymn book for the church, really, through all these years. Of, uh, so we've taken a few of these different ones, and today I've got Psalm 63, and it's a song of, it's a psalm, or song, either way you say it, of trust. It's really about, uh, uh, often psalms will go in a sort of pattern where they start with sort of a, a statement of, of equilibrium, like, you know, things are as they should be. Then you go a little farther into it and you realize, no, they're not. Or suddenly something upsets the apple cart, right? So someone might be praising God and then suddenly their very real emotions come into the, into the mix and they start saying, but people want me dead and I want them dead. And I'm, you know, things start to surface, right? And it's like, you know, sometimes our prayers are like that too. Well, often our prayers are like that. We're like, God, I just praise you, but I'm so mad and God, but I'm so disappointed and life is so difficult and why is this happening? And, and sometimes, and what some Psalms will go from that state of equilibrium to everything being upset, and then come back around like a nice movie, you know? But others of them don't do that. They actually sometimes end and everything's still a mess, which actually should encourage us because a lot of times that's our lives, right? We get to the end of praying and we ha it isn't resolved and we don't know what to do and we don't... Sometimes we come back to that part where we just say, but I trust you, God. And I, I have the... Um, privilege of sharing one that's sort of like that today. But a lot of the Psalms, as we've been learning, if you've been here and you hear the podcast, you'll hear some of the ones that have been shared by Pastor Kurt or Chris or uh, Pastor Dave Moore. Some of those Psalms that some of them have shared have been very messy, super messy prayers, which again, should be encouraging because a lot of us have messy lives and messy prayers. And that's okay. God can sift through your charged emotions. God can sift through your messy life, and, and God uh, hears those prayers. In fact, it seems like he encourages us through the Psalms to pray those kind of prayers. I mean, if your life's all hunky-dory, don't make up some, you know, angsty prayer. But if you've got angst in your life, God welcomes that kind of exchange with him, with that kind of approach to him. So that's a little bit of what we're doing. But back to the, uh, what should I title this, this, uh, this psalm? I just made it simple. I just called it Psalm 63, Longing for God. Longing for God. And I really feel this is, this is the heart of Psalm 63. I mean, let's actually, let's read it together. I know you just sat down and you got comfortable, but then you might fall asleep. So let's not do that. Let's stand together. Can we get Psalm 63 up on the uh, overhead? So it'll only work if, well, I guess we got, okay, there we go. So we'll read it together and then you can have another seat again after that. But let's just read the word together. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. 
On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Okay, you may be seated. Thank you. So you can sort of see some of the messy part of the prayer at the very end. At the very end of this psalm, you see some of the messy part of that prayer. You see some, some things are, are resolving, some things are not. Uh, but what were the circumstances? If, you've got, if you are reading this in the Bible, it may say that uh, it's a psalm of David while he was in the desert of Judah. So what does that mean? If you know the story of David, you know that he was sort of on the run a lot. He was a shepherd boy who came to serve a king who was sort of a bad boss, a very bad boss, and wanted to kill him, tried to kill him, really swore he would kill him, uh, and chased him all over the place. And you might be thinking, if you know the story of David, that this is a story about when Saul was chasing him all over the place. Saul, King Saul. Uh, but I think it's actually a different time period because at the end of the psalm talks about the king. He's speaking about himself. I think this is more in the era where David himself rose to become the next king after Saul through all sorts of circumstances. And uh, I think it's actually talking about a different period where David was on the run, and it was after he became king. After he became king, you, you can, I think the backstory is basically found in, in 2 Kings 15 to 18. So if you want to read 2 Kings 15 to 18, it is a page turner. I'll tell you, this is one of the more, I, I found it very exciting story, uh, even just to reread it. I mean, when I heard it growing up, I thought it was amazing. Uh, basically, I'll give you the, the short version. David has a son named Absalom who wants to be the king and doesn't want to wait for his dad to die. He's not going to be actually chosen to be the next king anyhow. And so he tries to take the kingdom by force. He tries to usurp the power and authority of the kingdom. And so he, he sort of sweet talks a lot of people, gets them on his side, gets himself declared king. So now you have King David and his son Absalom who's risen up to be the rival king and armies with them to go head to head. And it's very interesting. You've got two kings. You've got two advisors. Very interesting their interplay. What happens? I'm not going to tell you the whole story because I think it would be worth you reading. Um, you've got two generals that go head to head in some of their exchange. And, uh, but the part of where I think this song, where I think David probably sang this song, is early in the story. Uh, Absalom has risen up, declared himself king. He comes with an army. He's coming to, the, to Jerusalem with an army. And David flees. He takes a lot of his family. He takes fighting men with him. But he flees Jerusalem. He's on the run. And uh, I'll read you a little bit of the backstory here, just right out of uh, chapter 15. Okay, so 2 Samuel 15, 23 says, The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on towards the wilderness. Um, Zadok was there too, and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God and 
Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. David, in those verses, seems a little bit resigned uh, that this could be the end. And if you read the story, you're going to have, this is what perked in my imagination when I was reading the story. It reminded me of watching movies about Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And, you know, those movies often talk about, you know, they show the rise of Camelot and what a wonderful place it is. And then those stories inevitably come to the destruction of Camelot or the end of Arthur's reign. And David was sort of the king of all the history of Israelite leaders. He's the pinnacle. I mean, his son Solomon was super wise and super rich, but he sort of, you know, he got tangled up with too many wives and that that sort of took him down the wrong path. But David, he wasn't perfect, but he was, the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. And, you know, people often talk about David. Even years later when other kings rose and fell, they always hearken back to King David. He was the King Arthur of Israel. And this moment is like Camelot is coming to an end really is. You read it, again, I I really encourage you, you want an interesting read, it is a very interesting read, these three chapters, 15 to 18 of 2 Kings. We're not going to deal with it, or not going to read it today, but it is very interesting. And if you haven't read it before, uh, there's a very interesting, uh, there's a couple deaths that happen in it, but a very interesting death at the very end that that you might not know about, and uh, I won't won't spoil the, uh, the end, okay? But I encourage you, but what kind of song do you sing when you personally are about to lose everything? More than that, what kind of song do you sing that what, because of you losing everything, tons and tons of people around you are going to lose everything too? You say, well, nobody sings in those circumstances. Well, we just read the song. We read the song of David when he was in the desert of Judah. And let's walk through the song that he sings. First says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I, you know how you can say a sentence differently if you just emphasize a different word? Okay, let me say it two different ways. You, God, are my God. You, God, are my God. If you've emphasized the word my, you'd, you'd probably think about, you know what? There are a lot of other things you can worship. There are a lot of other, in their time, with idols and false gods and all sorts of things, there'd be a lot of other gods you could worship. But the essence for David is he's saying, you're it. You're the one. It's you. You alone. You're the one uh, that is my God. But what if you said it this way? You, God, are my God. Then you're talking about, when when you write the word God with a capital G, like God, we're really talking about God, then you're really talking about that not only was he David's choice or he was David, uh, David's, um, he was his, his, his uh, ultimate priority, number one, but also that being God meant you can supply my needs. 
You're my source. You're the one who can, who can do the things that need to be done in my life. So I just want to say this to be, at the beginning. There's a lot of things David could be praying for. He could be praying for military victory over the enemy army. He could be praying for reconciliation with his son. He could be praying for uh, that his family would not be slaughtered even if he was killed. He could be praying that no one would knife him in the back in the middle of the night. That would probably be the quickest way to save a bunch of lives. Do away with David. Absalom had the overwhelming uh, support of Israel. He had the bigger forces. They fled Jerusalem for a reason. They were in the minority. Why not just do away with David quickly and save a whole bunch of heartache and, and slaughter? He could be praying for that, but he actually goes to a different place and he prays a prayer that is... Is different than all those things. He just says, God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek for you. He asks for the one thing. That's why I say it's a, it's a psalm of longing. There are circumstances in our lives, and I, I don't know if you've been there before. Maybe you have, where it isn't even you've prayed for this to be fixed and this to be changed and these circumstances to be made right, and at the end of it, you just go, okay, God, I have nothing it looks like it's all going to fall apart. It looks like maybe it has already. It seems like this is irreparable. God, can I have you? Can I at least have you? Can I at least have you? Listen to how he longs for God. He says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. How earnestly? He says it in the next line. I thirst for you. You ever been really thirsty? I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. That's, this is like the prayer of every farmer in this area right now. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. You know that, those prayers, farmers, where you looked at the sky and you said, oh, please, clouds, please a little bit of rain. This is a, a drought-afflicted part of the world as well. They know what it means to, to want water, to need water. And it wasn't just for crops, it was for, for, for life, to be able to drink and, and be satisfied. And then he references something. He says, I have seen you in the sanctuary. I have beheld your power and your glory. Now David is now away from Jerusalem, and in those days people worshipped in Jerusalem. So now he is leaving the sanctuary. He was leaving access to God. In fact, they took the Ark of the Covenant with them, offered sacrifices, but I read to you that then they decided to send the ark back. So everything, all of David's sort of, uh, I mean, David would pray to God. He, he learned this when he was a shepherd, when he was a young, a young man, young boy, he learned to pray to God. But he is lo- he's, he's, he's going to be like not going to church for a long time. He's not going to be in the corporate worship that Israel would have experienced in those days. He's not going to be in that, uh, that large congregation where just the sense of the bigness of God, as many people, voices were raised to God. He wasn't going to experience that anymore. But the memory of seeing that is still real to him. He says, I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory. Uh, wouldn't it be, I, I guess this would be a prayer for any church, that our worship together would be such that when we are away from worshiping together, we would be homesick for it. 
that we'd, we'd actually, oh, I long for that, that, that worship of God that actually touches me on, a, on such a deep level that I hunger for it, I thirst for it, I earnestly long for what I've experienced. I hope that our, our worship together, uh, I, I believe in many ways is that and, and, and can be more that even as we go, even as we continue to, uh, walking together. He says, I've seen you in the sanctuary. I beheld your power and the glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. That's a pretty amazing statement. Your love is better than life. David is losing all the good things of life. Now he's making a statement. I don't need all those things as much as I need your love. Your love is better than all the things of life, than life itself. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. And I will praise you as long as you, I live. And for David, remember, his time might be limited. He might not live very long. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I think these first four verses, I'd like to say this is David showing the worth of God by fainting for him. I, I had to say fainting because I have another F word I'm going to use later on. Not, not the one you're thinking of. Anyhow, um, there's two... I think in the first four verses, he faints for God. He's longing for God. He's got such a desire for God. And you know what? When you feel that in yourself, when you feel that longing for God, like maybe you know God is your God, and yet it's seen your relationship with him, you, you desire that, even though you, see, you feel like you're in the wilderness or a dry time or, or a distant time, that is still speaking volumes about God's worth. Have you ever felt that way where you just, life is busy and crazy and, and all over the place and there's stresses and anxieties and you just sort of have a moment to breathe and you go, God, I, I just, I want to get alone with you. I just, when can I, when can I be with you? When can I experience you? When can I, when can I talk to you? I, just my life. So I think our fainting, our, our longing speaks about God's, uh, God's, um, Value, but I also think that the next few verses speak about his value as well. Now, all this is, I'll, I'll get to the second part in a bit. All this is predicated on the fact that God was David's God. Even though he felt the desert, the distance, all those things, he was his God. He had made that, he had come to that point of commitment. I was reading uh, this, this is uh, a, a quick little snippet of the commitment that Jonathan Edwards, he was a famous American um, Christian in like hundreds of years ago, 1700s. When he was 19, he wrote this. He says on January 12th, 1723, okay? He says, I made a solemn dedication of myself to God and I wrote it down, giving up myself and all that I had to God to be for the future in no respect my own to act as one that had no right to himself in any respect, and solemnly vowed to take God for my whole portion, looking on nothing else as any part of my happiness, nor acting as if it were, and his law for the constant rule of my obedience, engaging to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil to the end of my life. I think Jonathan Edwards could also say, you, God, are my God. You're my God. That's what it sounds like when a 19-year-old in 1723 
commits his life to God. Maybe I'll just stop here. Have you made a decisive covenant commitment to God? I mean, the whole premise of this whole, everything we're talking about today is based on that first line, God, you are my God. Is that true for you? I mean, we have temptations, yes. We have competing loves that God will show us in his timing that are competing with him. And then that's another great time of forsaking those to really uh, follow him. But is, at the very bedrock, is he your God? Is he your ultimate, your number one, your priority, your source, the one you look to, the one, the one that is, is leading your life? That's where we need to begin. I mean, that's what we need to have in place. If we're going to go on to all this, the treasuring of God that comes afterwards, it begins with that decisive commitment at the beginning. So here's David. In spite of running from Absalom, his cry to God is not protection for himself or military victory or, a heart, or the heart change of his son, but rather that he would have God himself. God is his God, but he longs for him. And the second part, well, let me say one more thing before I jump to that. How do you know that you truly love and worship God? I mean, how do you know that? I think how you respond when everything else is taken away tells you. Imagine... um, Let's say you go to a you go to a church and the worship band is great here and and the you know I don't know if the preaching is any good we'll see uh, but you you let's say you go to a different church environment and the worship is not a style that you like maybe the actually maybe the worship here style is not one that you would prefer that means you're in a very unique position if you ever get into that scenario where the music is not your preference and the speaking style is not your preference, you actually can conduct a scientific experiment. And the question you can answer is, do I really worship God or do I only sing or engage when things are to my preferences? So some of you, because you really like the worship here at Hillcrest, you might not be able to do that experiment here. You might actually, on your vacation, have to go to a church where, you know, the music isn't as well put together and it's not your style and it's not your preference and then you have an opportunity to do that same scientific experiment. I remember being in a, 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 a church service and a guy was speaking and I didn't like the style of how he spoke. And I was like, ah, sort of annoyed and restless and, and put off. And then I started hearing God nudge me a bit. Pay attention. So I started to pay attention, and I realized, well, you know what he's saying is good and right and points to Jesus, and it's biblical, and I just don't like the style. But all the content is awesome. <laughs> I thought, oh, wow. Am I here just for my own consumeristic need to have things in a certain way, or am I here because of Jesus? So probably there's going, to, there's going to come a time in everyone's life where you're going to get to do this experiment, and that's when you get older and older and older. Because uh, probably when you get to 
certain age, you'll say, I don't like the music anymore. You're going to be in that moment. And you're going to be like David. David actually, he was one, one of his practices was to say to himself, soul, the internal spiritual part of me, bless the Lord. <laughs> bless the Lord. I had to do that a few times. Again, when I was hearing that one speaker, I didn't like the style. I had to say, what are you doing, Steve? That guy's your brother in Christ. He's speaking the truth, and you're somehow put off by this? Start praying. Start engaging. I, that's what I did. That's what got me out of my funky headspace. I actually started praying, God bless this guy. I wouldn't do it the way he's doing it, but he's doing the right thing. He's aiming in the right direction. He's got the right heart, I think. God, bless this guy. Use this guy. Help him reach people that I couldn't reach. Help him, uh, would you bless his family? I don't know if he's married. I don't know if he has kids. Would you bless those around him? I had to really re, and then I said, Lord, let me draw out of what he's saying the things that I need. And I did. Because I changed my heart, I was able to receive. And he exalted Jesus, and I exalted Jesus right with him. When everything that's your preferences and all the things that you want are stripped away and all you really have is God, do you worship? Do you worship? This is what, uh, in the Old Testament, Satan makes an accusation. There's this whole interchange in the book of Job where Satan and God go and sort of have this exchange. And God says, look at my servant Job. What a great guy. He just serves me and he's awesome. And Satan makes an accusation back to God. Let me read it to you. Job 1, 9 to 11. It says, does Job, does Job fear God for nothing? That's the good fear, the respect, the honor that God deserves. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to his face. Satan's accusation and Satan's strategy are the same. The accusation he makes against Job, he says, if you took away everything you've given him, he would curse you because his God is not you. His God is what you've given him. That accusation, that's the same as the enemy's strategy for us. If he could take our following of Jesus, if he could take our worship of God and somehow pervert it in some way so that it actually is not about worshiping God and not that God is our treasure, but actually pervert it in such a way that what God gives us becomes God to us. I think he's planted this, and I'll call it perversion because it's not the true it's not what the Bible teaches. But he's planted the seed of perversion in a lot of Canadian hearts. I've been a, I was a youth pastor for 15 years. So that means now I have uh, a lot of years of Facebook uh, creeping of my kids. <laughs> creeping, you know, if you don't like that, whatever. But you can't get away with it. This is a whole generation that's just self-proclaiming what they're doing. So it's, they don't have to go to their pages to find out. It's just always being... Put in front of me. This is the one thing, and it hurts me when I see it, is I see kids who worship Jesus and youth group and love God, but then what they encountered was along the way, they encountered a deep disappointment. And I know when you're a kid or a teenager, 
somehow maybe you're shielded from some of the things that not all are, obviously a lot go through really tough times, but some of them are shielded and they think maybe they're going to lead a charmed life with no deep disappointments. And then they encounter one and they say, and I'm going to paraphrase sort of the whole, the whole thinking in one sort of idea. They say, well, if this is what following God is like, what's the point? I didn't know that my relationship would fail. I tried to do it God's way, my relationship failed. Or, or I tried to do it God's way and I, I, my financial life or my, my, my uh, student career fell apart. I tried to follow God and, and, uh, and it didn't lead to more money or it didn't lead to uh, better relationships and it didn't lead to uh, more material possessions. I don't see what the point is. To me as an ex-youth pastor, that hurts me deeply. That makes me think, oh, Lord. Did we not, were we not careful enough to point that out? That it's easy to get it twisted. To worship the gifts and not the giver. To think that God's blessings were the thing that's ultimate and not God himself. And so... And so we, we need to make sure that we're longing for God himself. We're coming to God himself. Ooh, I'm going to accelerate here, guys, because I took a long time on that. At our prayer summits, we try to keep this front and center. When you come to a prayer summit, we do about seven in the year. Next one's in October. Uh, we take a, an evening, and we, we worship the Lord. It's a guided prayer experience. But one of the things we do is first we praise God for who he is. Then we praise God for what he's done. Right? We start with the thing that needs to be foremost. That is that God is the ultimate treasure. And that what he gives is blessing beside. But even if he didn't bring those particular things into our lives and answer those particular prayers, he'd be worth worshiping for himself. That he himself is the answer to our deep longings. Not just the answers of prayers that he changed circumstances or provide. Or, or, and he does those things but that he himself is actually the answer to our longings. And David is at that point in life where maybe he's despairing that his circumstances will change, but he's still worshiping the Lord. So verses 5 to 8 just talk about how he's just, he's not fainting for God now. I think in this part of the prayer, he's starting to recognize the presence of God in his life, and it's like he's, he's feasting on God. Listen to verse 5 to 8. It says, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. And this bed is probably a tent at that point. If you went tenting this summer and you experienced that bed, being thankful on that bed sometimes is hard. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. He doesn't, would anyone feel protected in his situation? Not much. He feels it. He feels the reality of God around him. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down and he goes on to where his prayer gets very real about what he's facing. I sing to you as I cling to you. That's the, the, the takeaway I had. that. He's valuing God as he's feasting on him. He says, I will be fully satisfied because your love is better than life. See, I, I, um, I think that God has called us not just to dutifully follow God. I think God has called us to discover him in such a way that we love him. 
And I'm not just talking about sort of whipping up love. I'm talking about actually come to experience him so that we love him. For example, with my family, I can play charades with my kids. We play charades. That's one of our fun games. We do the version with the three-level version. First, you can do it with sounds, effects, and actions. And we have this, all the same clues. And then we do that. And then the second level is now you can't do sound effects. But we do the same clues, circle them around so it's sort of familiar. And then the third level is you have to do it all, no sound effects, and you have to do it all under a blanket. So we throw a blanket over ourselves, and we're acting under, oh, hilarious, funniest times. You know what? I could say to my family, Dad, will you play charades with us? Yes, because I'm a father who does his duty. Or I could say, yes, because I love playing charades with you guys. It's so fun. You're so fun. I love being with you. What if with my wife, what if I said, I bought you these flowers because it's the duty of a husband to buy flowers. How much fun does she get out of that? It's sort of diminished. She might still like the flowers, but she might not like me as much. But if I say, I bought you these flowers because I love being with you. I delight in you. God wants us to move from duty to experience real love for him, delight in who he is. I mean, duty is good, but delight is better. And it makes your loved ones, and in this case, God, appear as he really is, ultimately valuable. And so when we sing about God, and when we write poetry about God, and when we, and when we uh, uh, talk about God, and when we expound about God, and we, we want to uh, spend time with God, and we're eager to get to the church so we can worship together, It's starting to show the greatness of who our God is. I want to close with just a few quick snippet stories, okay? The first one's out of David Brainerd's diary. David Brainerd, he's about the same vintage as Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s in American, and his main work was reaching out to First Nations people uh, in, in, in America. And this is what he wrote about when he was reaching out to them. And uh, he was preaching, uh, again, one of those very first people sort of crossing the language barrier and beginning to communicate the gospel with First Nations people in New Jersey. And he made this observation. He says, There were many tears among them while I was discoursing publicly, while he was speaking. Yet some, of them, yet some were much affected with a few words spoken to them in a powerful manner, which caused the persons to cry out in anguish of soul, although I spoke not a word of terror, but on the contrary, set before them the fullness and all-sufficiency of Christ's merits and his willingness to save all that came to him and thereupon pressed them to come without delay. Here's a few more entries from his diaries. Earlier he said this, I was, it was surprising to see how their hearts seemed to be pierced with the tender and melting invitations of the gospel when there was not a word of terror spoken to them. Okay, the word of terror, that might throw you off. Again, it's old English. But here, this next story or this next snippet explains it. Uh, on November 30th from his diary, he says, he was preaching on the story of uh, Lazarus, who was a poor man, and the rich man, and how after they die, the Lazarus goes to um, paradise, or Abraham's bosom, heaven, long story, and the rich man who disregarded God and just lived for himself, he goes to, this, he goes to a place of torment. Okay? Listen to this. He says, so he's preaching this to First Nations people. 
It says, The word made a powerful impression upon many in the assembly, especially when I discoursed of the blessedness of Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. This, I could perceive, affected them much more than what I spoke of the rich man's misery and torments, and thus it has been unusually with them. They have almost always appeared much more affected with the comfortable than the dreadful truths of God's word. And that which has distressed many of them un- under conviction, and that which has distressed many of them under convictions, is that they found they wanted and could not obtain the happiness of the godly. What brain, I, let me put it into better words maybe, simpler words. Brainerd, what he discovered was he would talk about the emptiness of eternity without God and it was not as moving to the First Nations people as he talked about the love and the acceptance that's found in God. Very interesting. And I think both are needed. I think both are needed. But he talked about the love of God and that is what led to tears of repentance. Reminds me of someone in our church, I, I didn't get permission to say names, so I won't say, but who said, uh, it was the kindness of God that led to my repentance. Basically, that's a scripture quote. That when I realized what I could have in relationship with God, I mean, here is a source of love that's truly unconditional. Every other source we've been trained by since we were kids was if you do right, if you act right, or if you're smart enough, funny enough, cool enough, rich enough, whatever your, your, your peers at school taught you or trained you with, you could be accepted. You can be loved if that's the condition. You can be accepted if. And because we interact, even our parents who are pretty awesome, could be pretty awesome, they still because they're sinful people, they still struggle to offer unconditional love. And yet we find in Christ, not you can be loved if, but while we were still sinners, in fact, when there was nothing about us that made us pleasing to God, he died for us. He demonstrated his love for us. He laid his cards on the table and said, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Deeper love than we've ever known from anywhere else. He loved us first, he loved us most. Wow. When David Brainerd explained that to First Nations people in New England, they realized they had tears of repentance because they realized they longed for what he described. And many, many, many of them came to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Not running away from the terrors of being absent from Christ in eternity. But, although that had a place, and that for some people is needed to unstick them from wherever they are, and maybe in our our culture it might play a bigger role, but for them it was realizing there was something their heart instinctively longed for, and they wanted it. They wanted it. Let me just read you two more, and we'll be done here real quickly. Two contrasts. This is Charles Darwin. He wrote at the end of his life an autobiography for his children, and he expressed this particular regret. He says, up to the age of 30 or beyond it, poetry of many kinds gave me great pleasure. Formerly, pictures gave me considerable pleasure, and music a very great delight. But now for many years, I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I have also almost lost any taste for pictures or music. I retain some taste for fine scenery, but... It does not cause me 
the exquisite delight of for it formerly did. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of a large collection of facts. Please don't let that happen to your faith. I think the path that God has for us is to grow in love for him, grow in treasuring him, grow in delighting in him so that it's not less poetry that we write at the end of our lives. It's more. It's not less praise that we, that we, that we experience. It's more. It's not less gratitude. It's more. It's not less worship. It's more. It's not a harder heart. It's a softer one. It's a responsive one. That's the path he's called us on so that we delight. Here's the last one I'm going to read. C.S. Lewis, he writes, if you ask 20 good men today what they thought of the highest of, the highest of virtues, 19 of them would reply unselfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive the negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion of not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves, as if abstinence and not their happiness was the most important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has a lot to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We're told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this is a notion that's crept in from Kant, Kant, Kant sorry, and the Stoics, and there's no part of that in the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promise of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Let's stand. Lord, I believe that you called us not just to live a dutiful life, not just to live an obedient life. Yes, those are part and parcel of what it means to follow you. But you've called us to enjoy you forever. That you would be our joy. That the joy of the Lord would be our strength, in fact. You've called us into that. And so, Lord, I, I pray, Lord, that you would, uh, you, would, you would guard us against the things that can twist that along the way. I pray especially against what we've already talked about. The, the temptation to think of you as a, as a means to an end. That if I have God in my life, my crops will be bigger or my, 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 my wallet will be thicker or, or, or my relationships will be better or my children will be more obedient or something along those lines. Lord, help us. Help us 
to recognize that all the things that you might bring into our lives as blessings are just byproducts of the ultimate. That we get you. Even heaven, even heaven is not ultimate. That greater than heaven is relationship with you. Greater than everything else we can ask for, anything else we can imagine, we could pray for, we could, we could implore you to bring into our lives. Any prayer that you could answer, the greatest thing is you. The thing that our heart is, 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 is meant to be satisfied in, the, the, part, the reason we have a God-shaped vacuum inside of us is that you are there to satisfy. David said, as with the richest of foods, I will be satisfied when I don't have my home, when I don't have my bed, when I've lost my family, when my, my, my children rise up in, in rebellion, David said, you are my God. And I thirst for what really is going to satisfy, and that's you. And so I know there's people here today, and I know, Jesus, that you know their circumstances. You know that they're maybe in a wilderness experience. They're in a tough spot. And uh, there's probably been a lot of prayers and maybe some bargaining and whatever that's been laid out before you. But Lord, at the end of the day, we don't need those answers as much as we need you. We need you most of all. And Lord, you're a great God. You do answer prayer and you implore us to, to ask and seek and knock and keep coming at, to you uh, with good requests. But we need you. At the bedrock of our lives, we need you. And thank you that you haven't just called us into dutiful living. You've called us into delight. You've called us into to, to a, a laughing, dancing, uh, loving embrace with you. And so, Lord, I pray that delight would rise in our hearts as we, we keep uncovering who you are. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the incredible window it is on, on your character and on your, on your greatness, your majesty all your attributes. Thank you that uh, we see again and again how you are patient with man and you're, you're giving us uh, 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 this opportunity to make you ours, to make you our Lord, to make you our Savior. So Lord, we just, uh, we praise you for what you've done. We praise you for who you are. Uh, and Lord, we ask, would you fill our empty places with you? that place where we almost dare not hope that we can be loved like the Bible describes. Lord, could you allow us to experience that love? Could you allow us to experience the reality of that love that's already been laid out before us? The reality of that love that isn't based on something we've done, but it's based on, on your initiative? Help us see how, how deep and how wide and how long is the love of Christ. In your name.